My wife, Jennifer, grew up in a home where Scrabble was played often and many books were read. She excelled in English in school. Needless to say, my wife, Jennifer, has a rather extensive vocabulary. In our 20 years of marriage and the years we dated before we got married, sometimes she would use a word to which I would have to ask, what does that word mean? Of course, now we could just look it up, right, on the phone, but that was before the phone, and she would use a word. So many words she has used through the years, I've lost count. But I remember one of them about a year ago, I think. She used this word, maudlin. I'm like, what in the world does that word mean? And then she explained what it meant. Then she looked it up on her phone just to verify and confirm that she remembered what it meant. And it means to be overly sentimental. Now, my sweet wife would never admit this, but I know deep down, deep down, it has to bring her some level of satisfaction that she's got more words stored in her brain than her preacher husband does. Today I'm going to use a word that you may have never used, perhaps you've never even heard it before. It comes in the title of the Psalms message today. It's called the Imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory. Now that's not a word that we use in everyday conversation. It means to curse or to invoke evil upon someone or something. When we read through the Psalms, the entirety of those 150 chapters of this massive, diverse book, we will find these imprecatory statements throughout the Psalms. Where curses are invoked upon the psalmist enemies or the wicked in general. And there's enough of these that I believe it's worthwhile for us to try to understand why such language is found in the Scripture. Now, there are a lot of great things about children. One of the best is how frank they are about everything. They just say the things that are on their minds and they don't hold back. Let me give you a couple of examples that I read about this last week. There was a little girl, let's call her Susie. She was watching her mom do the dishes. And she noticed that her mom had several strands of whitish gray hair that were sticking to, to her brunette hair. And she asked her mom the question. She said, Mommy, why are some of your hairs white? To which her mother thought for a moment and then replied, Well, every time, Susie, that you do something wrong or make me cry or unhappy, then one of my hairs turn white. She wanted to use it as a teachable moment. So Susie was a pretty smart little girl, and she sat there for a few moments thinking about what her mom had just said to her. And a few minutes later, she had another question for her mom while her mom was still washing the dishes. She said, Mama? Yes, dear, her mom replied. She then asked, How come all of Grandma's hairs 
or white. <laughs> or maybe little Johnny. You heard about Johnny who uh, got to Sunday school late once. Knowing he was usually very prompt, his Sunday school teacher asked, Johnny, is there anything wrong? No, ma'am, not really, he said. I was going to go fishing, but my daddy told me that I needed to go to church. His teacher was impressed. She asked him if his father had explained to him why it was more important for him to go to church than to go fishing. Johnny said, yes, ma'am, he did. My daddy said he didn't have enough bait for both of us. You see, little Susie and little Johnny didn't shrink back from telling the truth. Mama wanted to tell little Fib to try to do some parenting, and Susie took her at her word and came right back at her with a very valid question. Johnny had no issues at all telling his Sunday school teacher exactly why he was at church rather than fishing. Both of those kids didn't hold back. So many examples we could use, life examples we could use. One of my favorite verses that the Apostle Paul speaks is found in the book of Acts chapter 20, 27, where he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now Luke wrote the book of Acts, but here Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders of that church in Ephesus. He is addressing them, his final kind of words. He says, I didn't hold back. I spoke to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God includes the things in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. The things we may not understand. The things that even seem contradictory, but they're not. One of the Bible dictionaries I looked at this last week regarding the imprecatory psalms said the following. These psalms are an embarrassment to many Christians who see them in tension with Jesus' teaching on love of enemies. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther referred to James's book as a strawy hair epistle. Luther struggled mightily to reconcile Paul's Doctrines of grace with James' practical, hard-hitting truth. But I want to be like the Apostle Paul. I don't want to shrink back from preaching and teaching all of God's Word, even the hard parts. When Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired, that includes the imprecatory Psalms. We find these difficult verses in the Bible for a reason. This morning, let's seek together to understand the purpose of these imprecatory statements in the Psalms. I think the best way for us to do that is just to jump right in and to look at several examples if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 11. We're going to be looking at several different references from the Psalms this morning. Uh, the, my pattern has been the past few weeks is to kind of focus on just one Psalm. We'll be on several, but our, our first one is Psalm 11. This is the first lengthy example in the Psalter of an imprecatory Psalm. 
And by the way, if you like Pastor Jim Cimbala from Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, he has a great sermon on this psalm he preached some years ago. Verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, for they have fitted their arrows to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now here's the imprecatory part, especially verse 6. Let him, the Lord, rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I've got three truths this morning I want to share with you. As we seek to understand the imprecatory psalms, number one, and you'll find these in your sermon insert in your bulletin, the psalms are a collection of writings of human beings who in their anguish pour out their hearts to God. That's why the psalms are so beloved by so many people. That's why we love kids so much. They don't hold back, do they? The psalms... They don't hold back either. Different authors, written from different situations, different contexts, but all written from a God-inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired, but very human perspective. Now, the psalmist who most likely wrote Psalm 11 is David. He is facing tremendous turmoil. Someone, it's not the Lord that's telling him to flee, but someone is telling him to flee, to run away, to go to the mountains. And the wicked are out to kill him. And the image he uses in Psalm 11:2 is that they have their arrows fitted to the string. They've drawn back their bow even in the night to strike against him. In verse 3, he feels as if the very foundations are being destroyed. And church, can we not apply this to our nation and our world? If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? That's a legitimate question. If we lose the moral foundation of a society and culture, what does that mean for those who say yes to holiness, yes to Jesus, yes to biblical truth? What shall the righteous do? Flee? Run away? That's what they were telling David to do. That's why he turns to the Lord in verse 4. He turns to the only one he knows to turn to and his life is in danger. Verse 4, the Lord 
That's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. And most of us are fine with those first four verses, but you get into verse 5 and verse 6, and that's where some Christians feel like it's just contradictory to when Jesus says to love your enemies. I'll say this. It is wrong and unfair for us to expect David in the next verse to talk about how much God loves these wicked people who are trying to kill him. That's not what he was thinking. That's not what he was feeling. He felt as if the very foundations of his world were falling apart and he appeals to a God who is on the side of the righteous and who opposes the wicked. Is the language strong? You betcha. He asks the Lord in verse 6 to rain coals on the wicked. He goes on to talk about fire and sulfur and a scorching wind being the portion of their cup. Remember Psalm 16 a few weeks ago where the psalmist says, The Lord is my portion. He is my cup. The lines have fallen in good places. My boundary places are good. God's blessed me. He's been so good. He says, Lord, rain down. A clear reference to God's judgment in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. David's imprecatory prayer is this, Lord, once again do this to these wicked ones who love violence, who are aiming to kill me. That's what David says. That's what the Bible says. If any, listen, if anything... It's verses like this that to me prove why the Bible is the true word of God. I mean, would a New Testament person looking at this through the lens of Jesus Christ and what Jesus said not be tempted to try to maybe mess with that a little bit, smooth it out? No, it's there because David wrote it, God inspired it, and it's in the Scripture for a reason. God's desire, David's desire for God to judge his enemies may seem extreme to us, but not to those who happen to be in his very situation. It's a, his very honest prayer to God that God might avenge and execute justice. We find a similar type prayer in Psalm 94. Now, you get to Psalm 90, you start seeing that's that great prayer of Moses. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But then you have these shorter psalms kind of nestled together. I think the great Psalm 100, the, the Psalm of Thanksgiving. And, but in the midst of all this, all these Psalms of praise and thanksgiving is Psalm 94. The first three verses. Listen to how the psalmist defines God. O Lord, God of vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? The Psalms are a collection of writings of human beings who in their anguish pour out their hearts to God. Number two, the imprecatory statements in the Psalms rightfully remind us that our 
loving God in his holiness hates evil and the wicked. Look with me now at Psalm 5. Psalm 5 is where we find the first imprecatory words in the Psalms. I want to read from verses 4 through 6. This is how God is described. If you could ask the psalmist, how would you define who God is? We find all throughout this, the book of Psalms that God's love endures forever. But we also find this. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Here's the psalmist's theology. That God is so holy that the Lord God is incompatible with any evil. Verse 4 there says, evil does not dwell with God. Which is amazing to think about. That God sent forth His Son into an evil world. In the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who was too holy to dwell with evil, became a human being that He might dwell with us to redeem us. Mind-boggling. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So if evil does not dwell with God, it follows logically that those who align themselves with evil will experience divine rejection. Now the language again is very strong in verses 5 and 6. But I ask this question, would God be just and worthy of praise if God condoned evildoers and took pleasure in bloodthirsty and deceitful people? I put this in your insert, this statement. The imprecatory psalms help us maintain a full view of who God is. Yes, God is loving and ever merciful. But at the same time, God is holy and just. And if God is somehow so merciful and so loving that God ever takes the side of the violent and the wicked against the innocent and oppressed, then that definition of God is incompatible. With the God of Scripture. Nahum. This is not an imprecatory psalm. It's a minor prophet. But verse 2 of chapter 1 of Nahum says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The idea is that God stores up wrath. You have to understand this. We are trying to use human language to describe an infinite, glorious God. We think in very limited ways. But even Jesus uses this language. He uses the language about how much that we're to love Him. 
He even says that we should hate our own family. And he's using hate there as a, just a contrast, as hyperbolic statement to show the, the, the love that you're to have for me is to be so great that the love you have for your family is to be like hate compared to that. It's just him using English language. Okay, Jesus didn't speak English. Jesus used Greek. He spoke in the Greek. So, so we have, and we have other scriptures, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I mean, we, use, we, see, we hear this language used in the scripture about love and hate. And I'll say this, in contrast to God's love for the righteous, the Lord does, I put parentheses there, quotation marks, hate the wicked in that sense. But elsewhere in the Old Testament we read in Ezekiel 33, 11, that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That God longs for the wicked to turn from his way that he might live. The New Testament agrees with Ezekiel 33, 11. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, we read that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9 in the NAS, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And I think we just have to humble ourselves and realize that our God is so much greater and higher than we are. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I just, I told my wife yesterday, so I'm putting my theologian cap on. It's always dangerous when I do that when I preach, but trying to systematically in my very small brain figure, I don't have a lot of words in there, you know that, how do I, how do I put this together? Is it not possible, put this in your insert, that God in his infinite nature loves the wicked and he does? How do we know that? Romans chapter 5. That while we were sinners, God demonstrates his own love toward us. Romans 5, 8. Keep reading in Romans 5. That while we are his enemies, in that sense, to be his enemies, he's stored up wrath. There in that sense is hatred for, yet there's also love there. Again, it's an infinite God that we're trying to understand. Is it not possible that God loves the wicked and mercifully desires the wicked to repent? Absolutely. But that God also hates the wicked and His holy and just nature requires that the wicked be judged. That's contradictory to us, but not to the infinite mind of God. And that's why Jesus said what He said in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not God. We're not the judge. That's why we are not to hate our enemies, but to love our enemies. We can't view with a righteous judgment like God can. So, number one, the Psalms are a collection of human beings who in their anguish pour out their hearts to God. Number two, 
the imprecatory statements in the Psalms rightfully remind us that our loving God in His holiness hates evil and the wicked. Number three, we must interpret all Scripture in its context. That is critical, especially as we look at these imprecatory statements. Flip over to Psalm 137. It has the most graphic imprecatory statements in the Psalms. Psalm 137. I'm going to go straight to the statement. Not going to hold back. What in the world do you do with this as a preacher, as a Bible reader? Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's there. What's the context? What's the context? Psalm 137, 1 through 4, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion stands for Jerusalem. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. From there our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Imagine being trapped in the city of Jerusalem, being surrounded by a vicious, violent enemy known for far greater atrocities in battle than even the Assyrian Empire before the Babylonians. You're hungry, you're starving, you're thirsty. You're there with all your family, your children, your grandchildren, your siblings, your parents. You're all huddled together. You hear a battering ram hit up against the wall of Jerusalem. Boom, boom, boom. You know they're coming in. Then you hear people shouting outside of the city. And Psalm 137, 7 tells us it was the Edomites, the enemies of Israel, saying, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The Babylonians storm in, they pillage, they murder, they rape, they trample, they scoff, they tear you and your family apart. With every cry you utter, they laugh, they strike, they steal, they burn. And somehow you survived it. And you're hundreds of miles away in a foreign land. And there, those same enemies who destroyed the city of God are now saying, sing us a song about Zion. Sing a song. What kind of prayer would you pray to God at that moment? Few of us In fact, none of us have ever experienced such torment, such torture, such pain. I pray we never have to. So how dare we then look at a psalm like this in our comfortable American context and say, Now, oh, you mustn't say that now, psalmist. We have no idea. We should humble ourselves and read the scripture in the context. The psalmist is not taking revenge here. He's asking God for justice to be repaid to these Babylonians. I think the most clear understanding of verse 9, and it's terrible to think about, was that it's the whole Old Testament 
law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which was their Mosaic law. I believe the Babylonians took those Israelite children and dashed those children on the rocks there in Jerusalem and they were crying out to God to repay them with the same. Crying out to God to bring justice is not evil or wrong, it's biblical. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Matthew 5, 44, Thank the Lord Jesus for these words. Thank God for the new covenant that we can look at all the scripture in its full context through the lens of the cross of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, which gives us both there and in Luke's gospel no right or reason to ever hate our enemies. We are to love them. That is new covenant New Testament Christianity. That's the full context of the scriptures. But in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 it says when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign Lord holy and true how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth and God said to them shh it's not what God said to them. Each one in the next verse is given a white robe and told to wait a little while longer. So how do we apply these verses to our lives? Vengeance belongs to God alone. And when you and I harbor up resentment and anger and in our hearts try to somehow pay that person back, it will destroy us. We must forgive. We must love because vengeance belongs to God. Amen? To that we should say amen. Thanks be to God. He is a holy, righteous, just God that He will make all things right. That's the God I want to know. That's the God I want to serve who will level the playing fields, who will make all things just and right. We also have to balance God's holiness with God's love. Have a full view of who God is. And understand this language might be hard for our human minds to grasp. But know that God in His infinite sovereignty and goodness does love the world. But that God is opposed to the proud. And His hand it will be against the wicked. If that's not true, then this whole moral fabric of this world will spin out of control. It may feel like it's out of control, but it's not. Because the Lord is on His throne and He will execute justice at the right time. And that depends on Him showing us mercy through what Jesus did for us and punishing sin through His wrath and through His judgment. We're to love everyone. We're to love even our enemies. Do good, pray for. That is the mandate. And that's God's heart. That's what God did through sending Jesus. That's what God, He is slow to anger. He is longing for all people to repent. That includes you and me. 